there's a lot of the internet that we haven't explored that we might not know about that you know people who kind of run it actually do know about um socially the internet is like a park you have people who are there just to have a good time and then there are people there who kind of ruin your good time this is no such thing a podcast about the promise and reality of learning with technology i'm mark lesser This episode is about the internet, it's about digital culture, it's about whether information resources on the web are public resources. And we're talking about web literacy. I have a pretty rock star group of folks. Here they are. Hi, I'm Chris Lawrence. I work for Mozilla, where I help to lead our efforts uh, connecting leaders to the issues of internet health and to each other. I'm Charles Canario, former Global Action Project Youth and Youth Facilitator. I've done some work for Mozilla in a privacy workshop and the former college counselor. Hi, my name is Liana Lugo. I'm a guest from the Educational Video Center, here to give my two cents. To me, there's no such thing as the most important literacy for the digital age. And anyone who thinks differently, uh, I would encourage to um, hit me on Twitter, and I would love to have an episode where we have that discussion. Is there a most critical literacy for the digital age? There's just, to me, there's too much uh, intersectionality. There's too much to consider in terms of young people's context. But I don't think there's that many people who would argue that web literacy isn't one of the most important. I'm really lucky to have uh, Charles, Chris, and Ileana in this conversation to talk more about why. Before we get started, two weeks until Halloween, that means you have two weeks to win a brand new Google Pixel by rating, reviewing the podcast, and tweet at me at M-A-L-E-S-S-E-R on Twitter with the hashtag NoSuchThingPodcast. Good luck. Chris, as uh, one of two of us who can talk about um, what has changed in how the web influences learning. I'm curious about your perspective, both as an educator and uh, as somebody who has experienced this as I have from the beginning. Um, what are what are the things that have changed, and uh, and how has the web influenced our uh, our system, both as learners and uh, maybe you can talk a little bit as educators as well. From the beginning, we've been together, Mark. Um, I think it's interesting. I think when we began, and I'd say, you know, anywhere from eight to ten years ago, when a lot of the work on on these subjects intensified in education, it was kind of a cabinet of curiosity, right? It was new, it was exciting, it was how do you bring these kind of gizmos and devices and the web into classrooms, and there was a certain... um, uniqueness about it. I think the speed and pace of technology, the the hardware, the software, what it's meant for us in society has moved so fast in that amount of time that now we're in a place, maybe it's a little bit more of a defensive stance. We're not Oh, how could this be interesting? How could we use this? It's almost how do we deal with this? How do we integrate this properly but responsibly? How do we help youth keep up with this 
the pace and the and the implications of life with with these new realities, which I don't think any of us have figured out. The other piece I think that is super interesting is that now that the web specifically and the internet has made inform you know made our access to information and. Uh, much easier. We have less of a need to fill our youth, our students, uh, our education pedagogies in terms of in- in- information delivery because you can access inter- information at any time. So instead, what we've done and what we need to do and we need to do more is help youth make meaning with technology of their lives, whether they're digital or not, but that these tools can be really powerful meaning-making tools. And how do we help youth um, work work out what they what they want to be, what they want to see, what they want to do in life with these tools, and then have a conversation about what they what their societal impact is sort of together at the same time. Um, so that's sort of my thinking about where we are. It, I missed some of the days where it was kind of interesting and like, oh, this new thing and how do we integrate that into teaching? But now I think we have a much more important task about how we think about technology and society across the curriculum. So uh, Chris said this phrase, meaning making, and uh, I'm curious for you, Charles and Ileana, how has the web influenced um, you guys as learners? Um, Can you think of uh, some of the things most recently that would be practical examples of how uh, the Internet is just part of who you are as a learner? So the Internet for me has advanced my like flow of learning for me personally so i've always been very interested in science and the such so recently i was on an article about nasa finding more exoplanets and then that led me into a deeper dive from nasa exoplanets to stars to quantum physics and mechanics so the how the internet has adapted to me learning is where i start at one thing and then continue learning through diving deeper into different and more more in different subjects. How about you, Leon? For me, it affects my learning in a way where I could set it up where everything just works for me. Being someone who started learning coding only in August and getting as far as now trying to make it into more of an entrepreneur thing where I code and offer my coding services to somebody else, it has made it possible for me to just take small things, learn step by step, and kind of break things down in a way that it makes it easier for me to learn that I have all these aspects and different things that I could reach into so that I could grasp and present information a lot more quicker, a lot more efficiently mm-hmm. and in a very, in a very timely manner. Mm. If you guys I have an SAT question. So if, if you guys, if we were to create an analogy about the internet um, and if the internet is a public space, um, what public space would it be most like for you? I'm going to go with uh, the public park. Uh, public park. Um, Say more about that. In a way where a place like Sancho Park, or to be honest, I'll even make it broader, like maybe even like a state park. There's a lot of the internet that we haven't explored that we might not know about that, you know, people who kind of run it actually do know about. Um, socially, the internet is like a park. You have people who are there just to have a good time, and then there are people there who kind of ruin your good time and just come in kind of unannounced, and things happen always unexpectedly. Mm. It's a park. It's huge. You don't really know what's going to be around the next corner. Um, 
and there's a lot that could happen. There's a lot of learning you get from a park as well. In terms of the natural aspect, you say, oh, you know, I didn't take this route for a hike before, and now I learned there's a shorter route, or there's, there's different paths you could take and different ways and different things you could gain from it. Mm-hmm. So I gotta say, like, even, I'd say, public parks, any kind of park, state park, is probably the best analogy I can think of. Mm-hmm. How about you, Charles? So, originally for me, it started off as, I thought, when you asked the question, I thought about a public library, being that it's a receptacle for all knowledge that you can access. But I also agree with you, Liana, that it also works as a park, because there's a lot less social function in a library. The park has more interactivity, anyone can access, like everyone can go to the park and get to any part of it. You don't need special access, and you can interact with others who are already there in the park. Mm. Also, I recently, towards the end, I was thinking about a beach in that there's also there's that social interaction at the beach and there's fun, there's music, there's playing, but there's also learning where people are learning by doing, by swimming, teaching others to swim. But there's also that inherent danger of that there's like a deeper part that you can fall into if you're not careful. Mm. And that's like not really well known. Yeah. Your beach analogy makes me think... uh Makes me wonder, as a as a parent, I think the difference between um, a beach and the internet is that uh, we. I think when we go to the beach, even though we have lifeguards there and uh, there are, there is some safety in place, I think the onus is on parents. Um, and, and at least among the parents uh, that I know, I think that that's a pretty a pretty known uh, thing that uh, adults are there to supervise. And so it, it makes me think, I like the analogy because um, it kind of uh, reminds us uh, that we're all a part of um, helping young people navigate the space. Chris, how about you? But Ileana's talking about the park is the one I that I've used often. I, I, I it one that resonates with me. Unfortunately, I think it's one that it maybe is a web or an internet that we're losing a little bit um, because I actually see my current answer is probably be a shopping mall. has a lot of the same social impulses, gathering, a lot of the things people might do in a park, teenagers, adults on a weekend or whatever, go there, not just a shop often, but they go there because it's a public space. They go there because it's going to provide value to them, but they sort of have to battle and cut through the noise, the marketing noise of the mall being sold at, uh, having things like movie theaters and bowling alleys and food courts compete for their time and attention along with the stores. And I worry that the make your own reality, which can be commerce in a park, right? Um, you know, a musician busks. Uh, there's restaurants in a park. Uh, my daughter was in a summer camp where the this summer where they did poetry. The camp counselors used the park as their classroom. So there's lots of ways to monetize people's activity. But it's a much more self-guided way where I think – what I think is scary is that the internet is actually turning more into a mall where we might all go there to socialize or to connect or to have some of those same experiences, but it's in a much more commercialized space. Mm. And harder harder to find uh, 
a sort of space that the public owns. Within, oh, there's no ownership, right. Right. right? There's no ownership there. You're using you're using the bench that they put out in front of, you know, the Gap or whatever, yeah. you know. And you may have a very personal conversation with someone, or you might meet someone there, but it's 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 controlled. And you don't you can't pop up your own store in a mall, right? I mean, part of the beauty of the the internet was, and hopefully still is, you know, the kind of you can make it what you want. Um, and so it's not – you can't just put up your own store at the mall, yeah. right? Um, it, 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 or you're being squeezed out by the, the big retailers. In fact, even in a mall construct, there aren't that many independent stores left. You know, it's mostly chains. It's mostly being controlled by fewer and fewer companies. Yeah. It makes me think um, – embracing that reality, it makes me think of uh, – if, if we have a challenge before us, it's how we turn those malls into farmer's markets. And um, not not so much, you see smaller sort of uh, farmer's markets that happen um, that uh, aren't so much what I mean. But but when you think about a farmer's market, especially in, in a big open space, a rural area, um, it becomes very much a center for uh, there is commerce, but there is also very much an exchange of culture and ideas. Uh, there's music happening. Um, there's all kinds of public life that's sort of coming in and out. And um, I, I didn't have an answer to the question uh, when I asked it, but but um, as happens sometimes, I think uh, my answer is way better having heard from uh, your answers. Um, so, Charles, you've done some uh, some work. Uh, Mozilla has been at this for a little while now, working on Internet health, which I'm going to ask in a minute for uh, you to describe more, Chris. Um, but you, as a student, as a high school student, have been involved as sort of a mentor in this uh, movement toward Internet health and uh, teaching some things about web literacy. And I wonder if you'd describe that experience and uh, tell us one or two things that really surprised you about that experience. So the in the experience for me personally was very interesting being from I had always been pretty like in my like experience I was the the tech person right so like if anything ever went wrong it was my duty to fix it so exploring the literacy and the like Mozilla work was very interesting for me cuz it also twisted that on an angle that I wasn't always thinking about and it forced me to expand my own personal knowledge but Two things that I found really interesting are with two seemingly very different groups of people, one being in older older communities and one being younger communities. So with older communities, they are more trusting towards the web and towards the Internet, being that like they see it in the same way they see newspapers classically, where it's like you had your local newspaper that you read. It was always the truth and it was always correct. That was what information was. And with the Internet, we can't always process it that way because pretty much anyone has access to put information out there. Mm -hmm. So we have to be very critical in how we process information. We can't always take it at face value. And the other group that I found interesting, young people, is how little they want to be involved in the background of the the web. Like, because it's always been something that's been there for them. So even when I was in middle school, high school, 10 years ago, it was 
just very much like I was learning how to use technology, how to explore the internet, how to use all these platforms that now are currently we carry around they car- we carry them around with us all the time. And seeing that in people who have been raised where it's always been there is interesting because they don't take those extra steps to make sure they're safe they're safe and they don't process the way of thinking like oh this is something that i have to be careful around because it's just always been there it's been a presence that's always existed for them how about you Ileana? has that been your experience as well I would say so, yeah. I've always been interested in how like the background kind of works in terms of the internet, like who runs it, how does that work, um, are these companies related? When you kind of look at the thing, when I first started, it wasn't as prominent for me to you know care about stuff in the background of the internet but as I grew older and I watched how kind of like the ad market kind of changed I saw how ads were just kind of geared toward me in a way where I never expected it to I'm like Mm. wait that wasn't like that before so in terms of how things go in the background I think a lot of the youth should really care about it because that's your information and if it's if your information is showing up as ads that means somebody's making money off of it Mm -hmm. because you have companies like Google you have social media you have um your cell phone and phone providers your internet providers who are taking your information monitoring it um and then selling it in a way that it gets sold to the marketers then it comes back to you in ads and then it's just like a cycle of hey you like this so we're going to show you this and you're like but i don't want to see that mm-hmm. kind of get to my content I'm like no 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 we're going to show you this ad first and that's kind of like that's where it becomes kind of a thing of like invasion of privacy and it's like we should care about our privacy to that point Mm -hmm. like it should be something that's well known but the reality of it is that it's not yeah so so a lot of these issues that are coming up as you guys are describing some of your experiences are areas um that mozilla talks about as internet health um and i'm i'm Curious, Chris, to have you just um, explain a little bit for those who don't know Mozilla uh, to describe a little bit of of what you've been up to as an organization and and through the foundation, um, and then can you tell us about the internet health movement? And I love uh, I love the pillars that you guys have. Um, drawn and sort of put out there as a driving force for this work. So tell us about that. Sure. So for those of you that that might not know, Mozilla is the organization that makes Firefox. Um, and so back in the Firefox origin story, uh, the idea was to build a browser that kept open standards and open source stuff at its core so um, that the web would remain sort of free and open. And at the time, Internet Explorer was becoming the dominant browser, and it was really making it so the websites had to work on Internet Explorer in their own proprietary code. So that's sort of – I don't want to get too deep into that, but that's sort of our beginning. Mozilla, though, is more than just the Firefox browser. And so a lot of the work that we've been doing over the last seven or eight years was actually how do you start to think about who is going to steward and protect the web? We talked a a few minutes ago about public parks. Um, So there are – 
foundations and organizations and groups of people that come together to make sure that the park uh, remains what it is to most people. It it stays clean, it stays protected, it raises funds, et cetera, et cetera. We see ourselves a bit like the stewards of the web or part of a group of people that want to be stewards of the webs. We're certainly not the only ones. And within that, it really is what we like to say is that we want to protect the internet as a public resource like water, like electricity, like heat in the winter. These are things that only the wealthy in a completely free market system, only the wealthy would have those things. You know, you'd have to pay a premium to teach your home. That's why society has stepped in and said, no, these are core things. These are quality of life issues that must be protected as a public resource. And we think that, especially over the last 15 or 20 years, the web has become that, the internet. So with that, we've started to think, okay, so what does the internet need? It's an ecosystem. It's many things. It's not just a monolithic thing, right? So we started, like an ecosystem, it can be both healthy and sick simultaneously. And we want to better understand what aspects are healthy and sick and then what the effect they have on each other when that is off balance. The foundation has really dedicated itself to this idea of internet health. Um, And we want to make internet health a mainstream issue. We want to make it like don't smoke, put your seatbelt on, recycle. We want it to be that almost popular culture in a way to think about that we all need to be looking at if the internet is healthy, if it's internet it's healthy for ourselves, for itself, for society, etc. And so we define that uh, right now, five key issues. And so that is, are people web literate? Do people actually understand the web? Do they, can they read it? Can they, can they write it? And can they participate on it? And they understand that. Two, that, that, it's, that it's inclusive, um, whether that's um, some places in the globe where we're getting access for the first time, or whether um, there are the supports to help people participate in positive ways. That's going to look different no matter where you are. But we think that the more people are on the web and on the internet, the healthier it will be. Um, it's private and secure. We just talked a little bit about that. But you know, do people have trust in the spaces that they are? Are they being exploited? Are they opening themselves up to harassment, to to, to fiscal ruin, things of that nature? Um, also, that it's decentralized. We all know our media culture right now is owned by three to four big media companies, and that's music, movies, TV, etc. Um, that. We don't want the web to turn into that. You can already see that trend, whether you're talking about the Facebooks, the Googles, et cetera. You're seeing the monopolization of the internet already. We want it, we want it to be decentralized. We want um, it to not be dependent on a few companies. And then we want it to be a place for open innovation. One of the interesting outputs of Firefox and the sort of the, the Firefox won and kept the browsers to use open standards was it actually created the level playing field that that spawned that next generation internet revolution that gave us the Facebooks, that gave us the Twitters, that gave us the Instagrams, because they could build on something they knew was going to be the same for everyone. So we need to keep that the internet is actually an open innovation platform, that innovation can come from all over. Um, And so that's how we're defining it right now. We want it to be a public conversation. We want those ideas to evolve, to sharpen, to to include other ideas. But that's where we started. Mm. You said a lot. I did say a lot. I saw, I'm sorry. <laughs> I apologize. But I love that. I um, I love uh, 
Well, for a lot of reasons, and and one not least uh, is that I admire the organization for um, taking a leadership role. Not that uh, not that Mozilla sees themselves as the be all end all, uh, but rather sees uh, a part of their role as um, rallying the public um, to help see the internet as a public space. Um, if you had Chris there in the background, we can hear some of the programs at Mouse going on right now. Uh, Tuesday evening, one of our our programs meets. Um, if you had one area of uh, internet health, if you had an outcome that of all of Mozilla's efforts, you think is the most pressing right now for young people. Um, what would you what would you like that to be or what do you think that should be uh, if you were to go out and uh, run some programming to talk to these young people who are here tonight about the internet um, what do you think is is the the most important at this point in time well I'm gonna put the politics aside for just a few minutes because there's all kinds of political issues I don't mean maybe small P politics but you know whether it's net neutrality or actually privacy and security concerns those are all very vital things and and we're, we're working and fighting for those things but I think if for young people I still think it is the joy and the power of creation that still is the thing I would want to, to communicate and more importantly communicate to, to work on together with young people. We one of the things and maybe maybe we've lost sight of this a little bit, but one of the main things that's so exciting about the internet and about these digital tools is that we have squashed the cost, the tooling, and the access to actually being able to participate in our media and cultural conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the the two young people we have here today are from New York City youth media organizations. And so in that, that's been part of that pedagogy for a long time. But even that, it's expensive. There's big cameras, you know, traditionally. We've seen that just squash, you know, to the point where anyone can be a broadcaster, anyone can be an author, anyone can can produce work to sell it, to use different licenses to allow people to use it. That is ridiculously exciting still to this day that we can actually have the opportunity to engage people in their creative passions um, and that those don't have to be dreams anymore, that, that, that space – Money, time, energy, access as squashed to such a degree that we can unleash the creators in all of us. Mm. Definitely. So you'd you'd want to you'd want to motivate them as creators. Yes, I would get, understand uh, themselves as that, and that the at the internet and these digital tools is their pathway to that. I'm not saying they have to you know become their identity or their careers, but that they actually that the world around them is creatable and is is remixable and is at, at their fingertips in a ways that Mark, you and I are about the same age. When we you know like the idea that we could produce a radio show or make a movie or broadcast on TV or be a public author, those weren't things that, you know, like we ever had a concept that we could do mm-hmm. um, and that if we did, it was going to take eight years of schooling or a lucky break or whatever. That, yeah. that There's lots of that that's still true, but the space to be able to accomplish that has gotten much smaller. The gap is shortened. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Uh, the the unattainable feels um, feels m- more accessible in in that respect. The the creative aspect for you two, uh, a big part of this conversation and and a point of curiosity for me is around young people's identity 
and how the web influences or doesn't uh, who you are and how you grow and learn. And uh, we talked a little bit in in one of Chris's answers about um, the the way that the internet, the web, has uh, changed the sort of landscape of education. And and but I'm curious from your perspective, um, specifically around the identity piece. Do you do you feel like uh, there have been moments in your coming up where uh, the web has really played a, a sort of crucial role in that? It's only recently that I feel that the web is playing such a crucial role in like development, especially career-wise. Mm-hmm. I was never really one to think I'd get into coding, but here, imagine I've gotten so far into it and I'm planning to make some kind of business out of it that it's just like, this is not what I expected. But the time frame that I'm doing it is ridiculous. Like, I only started August. It's now like beginning of, well, nearing the middle of October and I've mm-hmm. already like gotten a lot accomplished. So it's amazing how much you can progress as a youth. Once you know that the knowledge is there, like once you're knowledgeable of the fact like, hey, I have all this here that I could take from and use to better myself, my knowledge and my abilities. The possibilities are literally endless once Mm. you find something that you really like. Yeah, for me, it's been more towards expanding and exposure to things that I wouldn't normally have exposed myself to normally or like how I process information and use that to to further my thinking. I have like I've never been a big like a news person. Like mm. I don't like sitting in front of a television to watch the news. I don't like reading the news on my on my way to think. But I've found myself recently like like YouTube as a platform where I to take in smaller news information from sources that I trust that I know for a fact back their research with certain like journalistic methods so it's helped me like expand who I am and what information I process and what I add to my life Mm. instead of to further develop who I am yeah and you you don't think it would be uh, you'd necessarily be the same person having not had it as you were uh, as you were growing up and going through high school and uh, your experiences as a kid no I don't without the internet I feel like one of the magics of the internet is that how much smaller of a world it brings it makes the the world itself mm-hmm. like there isn't a like people who grew up in small towns traditionally would only be exposed to things in that small town for the most part mm-hmm. like if you we're in a factory town. Like, that's what your big focus was. You would see either stay in your factory town and then, like, that would end up being your future. Or you would leave and then go to a major city. And, but before that point of leaving, you wouldn't be exposed to other parts of the world. Mm. Being, growing up with access to the internet, you, you're like, oh, I know what's happening in, in England. I know what's happening in China. I know what's happening all around the world. And I have access to all of this information and media and sources from all of these places like like for me I my favorite source of like media entertainment comes from manga which is Japanese comic books and anime which are Japanese cartoons like that's how I that's like what I choose to spend my like time reading and 
watching. Mm-hmm. So, like, without the internet, I wouldn't have access to any of that for the most part. Like, because just like how, like, divided, how far away that is from where I currently am. Mm-hmm. So, like, without the internet making the world a smaller place, yeah. I feel like I would have been a lot more of a less well-rounded person. Yeah. So that actually that that brings us to a, an area of the pillars because um, I think access is a huge part of that, and uh, so it it makes me question or or just reminds me what the stakes are, you know, on the point that you just made about uh, the internet. And correct me if I'm wrong, I'm paraphrasing, but but you essentially said that the internet broadened your worldview, right, and and brought all this culture to your doorstep. Um, I would assume that with manga, it motivated you to read a little bit, um, uh, helped you think uh, in this world uh, that was sort of outside of the the sort of uh, what was out your doorstep. Uh, it had all these benefits for you. So it, it makes me really think about access and what the stakes are. And um, so uh, can you just describe, Chris, uh, within that pillar, um, what are some of the things that Mozilla is doing uh, that we should just be aware of as a public uh, to make sure access is a real thing for uh, young people and adults? Yeah, well, I mean, it's defined differently, you know, depending on, on where you are and what are the, the realities. So in a place like New York City where, uh, you know, People, most people have have smartphones where broadband and, and internet connections are increasing, where there's public Wi-Fi, et cetera. Then you're talking about access. You're talking actually about the kind of programs that we're hearing outside the door. Like what are what are the kind of programs that give people more of an equitable access into the big ideas, into the tools, into the conversation. And so we've been in, over the years have invested deeply in places um, where there already is the internet. And then how do you deal with the internet? How do you bring more people on? How do you open up its promise to to more folks? Then you go to other places where you know you're talking about just getting online. Mm-hmm. So um, you know we we funded some projects around the world. We ran uh, equal ratings challenge to see about where different places could 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 uh, get connected. So the the winner of that challenge was actually a organization in India that used um, TV and radio towers to broadcast internet signals to towns that had literally never even dreamed of, didn't even have a concept of the internet, let alone be able to connect. Um, and there's some real issues there. Um, some of you may have remember the internet.org controversy, which was basically a Fake nonprofit that Facebook started, and the idea was we'll bring we'll bring places that don't have the internet the internet, mm-hmm. and then only introduce Facebook as the internet. So not the plethora of the internet that sort of you know everything that's out there. So we'll give you internet, but then the internet that you receive is Facebook. So, so this is a really you know interesting space to think about what access is and who gets it. And then of course things like the net neutrality fights, and um, you know that's how we define it in America. But um, in other places around the globe, they have different, similar but different ways to frame that. And that to me is where. Um, we really can be we can be effective. Um, we've definitely been in the U.S. part of the net neutrality fight and and legislating that we keep the internet accessible in all those ways is one of the ways that we feel like we're at least trying to make a difference. These are heavy policy debates; they're not easily won. <laughs> yeah. Um, so. Um 
Mitchell Baker is one of the founders of Mozilla, and and I think you said that officially her title is Chief Lizard Wrangler. That is true. Um, I can confirm. <laughs> so she described the internet, uh, and I th- I think eloquently as uh, the networking of humanity, and I think that that's a really interesting idea because it brings up uh, the more we talk about the internet as a public resource, uh, you described it, uh, Ileana, as um, as a public park. Um, it brings up the question of rights and. I wonder if, and I think a lot of educators are wondering if young people are thinking about their rights in relation to the internet. Uh, and if so, what are the rights that come up for you when you think about uh, when you think about those things? So I have my two big ones are access being the net neutrality, but the other one that comes up for me is access to free speech, places where you can express your opinion openly and not be ostracized or kicked off for expressing your opinion. So, uh, traditionally, I use the the Adpocalypse reference, which is YouTube removing backing from content creators financially because of what their content that they deem is uh, non-family friendly mm-hmm. and controversial. And there was a there was a case you were describing uh, to me earlier before the interview about um, Casey Neistat and and the hurricane relief uh, yeah. that he was doing. So they demonetized him for they deemed his. He made a video over the past weekend talking about fundraising for the people who are suffering, like Puerto Rico and. Texas, who who lost most of their stuff, their like entire worlds were shaken for, by the hurricane, and then YouTube demonetized that, deeming it was inappropriate and not family friendly or controversial, and then other big companies like Jimmy or like late show talk show hosts who are now expanding into the platform kept their monetization mm. and their ads being big companies and not small content creators. So YouTube is openly backing is censoring essentially soft censoring not like openly telling them no but like forcing them to steer away to other topics that they would deem more appropriate by not by removing backing from those creators Mm. and it sounds like i'm um asking the obvious but why is that a problem for you i think personally because for me the internet is so much about having access to all these different viewpoints that if you're censoring and pushing people who have these opinions about things away then we narrow down to only having one point of view that we're all getting information from and then that isn't conductive to conversations and to learning and to furthering our society as a whole if we're all focused on one viewpoint and on getting all same information just basically force fed or not getting any information at all being only hearing things that are Nice and dandy, like, oh, there was this picnic, there was this really nice show, these fancy flowers are blooming someplace, Mm -hmm. and not like, people are dying, people, this is, the things that need to be fixed are being pushed under. Yeah. I'm chuckling at your fancy flowers are blooming someplace, I think was... (laughs) Yeah, like... I feel like sometimes I get so many like random information things on the feed that are just yes. like, this is nice happening somewhere <laughs> random. These are pretty, this is what's pretty somewhere else. Yeah. You just described like a third of the internet. Fancy yeah. flowers blooming yeah. someplace. Yeah. The niceties like cat pictures and 
funny animations are all funny games. Like we all need that time. That I appreciate that part yeah. of the internet, but there's a real part of the internet is helping people communicate in tragedies, and that sometimes gets pushed under the waves. I was hoping that we might get through this interview without mentioning cat. Or cat pictures, uh, <laughs> but I don't think you, you you were still in that time. I think that's this the baseline. Of the internet, it's like requirements. It's like internet, social media, cat pictures, <laughs> right? So, uh, Eliana, how about you? Um, rights. What do you think about when you think about the internet? What are the rights um, that are important, or do you think about it at all? Um, it's not something I really thought about until you know recently. Um, in terms of net neutrality and all that coming up, like I didn't even know that was anything that was happening until I heard about it, and then I heard about it, and then I was very upset about it. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of rights on the internet, I think it should be like the same. It should parallel the rights on in terms of in real life. Like, if you have the right to free speech in real life, you should have the right to free speech on the internet. Even though free some speech isn't the best speech you should still have the right to express it Mm. and in terms of other things in terms of rights i don't really know to be honest it's like it's something that's new to me and something i want to learn more about and i think more people should actually know about like i'm very curious about it yeah um you guys just both illustrated the importance of uh the uh, of uh, you both said free speech independent of one another and it it brings up uh, so there are very real circumstances um, recently where uh, that's gone the other way right so you have uh, with recent events uh, white supremacy groups who have had sites up where private companies have taken them offline in certain circumstances um, but I'm curious how you guys, feel about that is is that a violation of what you believe in terms of free speech um is it their job to regulate uh or is it someone else i feel like in terms of regulation it shouldn't be more based on the companies themselves it should be something on like a government federal level because mm. if we're trying to make internet something that's accessible to everyone where it's just like you know everybody has water and plumbing and heating everybody has internet then there should be guidelines for that it shouldn't just be the companies can have their way and support who they want when they want how they want mm. like with facebook recently white supreme it wasn't a recent thing it was something i saw a lot and it was white supremacy groups or hate groups that would preach a lot of nasty things um violent comments all types of stuff that you really don't want to see in your feed and they would put their opinions out you know freedom of speech they have the right to put their opinions out but then while also doing that they attacked people who were against their opinions mm-hmm. now saying your opinion and then you know having it out there is one thing but if your immediate response to someone not agreeing with it is to attack them verbally or just over the internet like really rude like um people i know a lot of stars are like on instagram they get they do um kind of activist kind of things where they go ahead and they talk against it like oh i don't agree with this we should do this um there's a poll for this you should there's a opportunity to sign this if you really don't like this or what's going on 
And they'll get threats in their inboxes, all types of like death threats, um, stalking threats, threats about um, their information being put out there. And that's where things, that's where the line should really just be crossed. If if you're going to be that crossed about your opinion being violated, then you should you should really have a right if that's your reaction. Equally, it should be like, if you're going to be there, if you see an opinion you don't like, and you're going to be there, you're going to say something against it. That's your right to do that. That's your speech. You say it, you do it. But the moment... Well, the biggest predicament on Facebook was there are people who would, you know, try to, you know, go against what the white supremacists were saying, kind of like rally against them. And those were the pages that were being taken off instead of the pages associated with white supremacy. So Mm -hmm. it was this huge thing where it's just like, that makes no sense. Mm -hmm. There's no equity there. There's no nothing. Yeah. So with the rights that you have in mind, Charles, from the free speech perspective, um, the white supremacy group has the same right to their their freedom to use the web as creators uh, in a public space as um, as anybody else. Yeah, yes or no? Yeah, I feel that being pro pro free speech, you have to be open to having opinions that disagree with your own. Like, while I don't agree with white supremacists, they have their people and they have their right to their opinions Mm -hmm. and they have the right to share your opinions. But you also have the right to contradict their opinions and talk against them. But that leads to a very, like, gray area when you're talking about the internet because what they're, if they're using, like, in your example, they were using Facebook, that's very much not their space. It's not, going back to the earlier mall analogy, like they're in a private space like facebook owns that space they're not in their own house saying their opinions they're in someone else's house like so that person who owns that place has the right to kick off whoever they so choose mm. so it leads to a very gray area where you have the right to say your opinion but you also they also have the right to remove you mm. so it's it's hard in the free speech topic if you're not talking in a place that you openly own yeah so do you think Liana's idea is right, is that uh, we need we need sort of federal regulation that, that helps to organize that? I mean, I don't really know personally how they would do it and that, like, regulate speech because – so there's the, the – you have your right to free speech, but you also don't have the right if that free speech would then cause harm, mm-hmm. right? Like, you can't incite – it's not free speech if you're inciting riots. It's like the classic example is screaming fire in a movie theater yep. in that it would cause people to panic and then rush and hurt people. You're not allowed to do that. So it's there should be some form of that in relation to the Internet and where you're not. You shouldn't be allowed to speak in ways that would cause harm to people like the whole cyberbullying initiative that happened a few years ago where that became a really big deal because kids were committing suicide in schools for other people bullying them online. Yeah. So there should be a point where there's limits of some kind, but I wouldn't, it's a very, it's difficult because you're not, unless it's like an openly government prospected space, you're not like government owned space, like there then would be treading on the rights of a private company to operate their website as they so choose. Yeah. So it's a very difficult concept to, to look forward into and try to sort out. Yeah. For you and me both, I think I think for the world right now. 
If the government were to get involved in regulating the internet, I'm pretty sure the companies who you know own these individual sites are most likely gonna have a problem with it. Just like any company in general, it's like a past kind of thing, like a comp like government try to do some kind of company or regulation of some kind, the companies are not gonna have it. So it's so much of and it's also in terms of wording, like where do you cross the line? Like in terms of going to somebody's inbox and threatening them, like that's obviously an offense. Mm. I think a lot of people already see it as that. Um, but in terms of just random comments just thrown at people, like what can you do? Mm. That's like the biggest question. For me, it, Chris, tell us, tell us your opinion. So, um, th- th- this is a, this is very complex. This idea of, of free speech and what that means, and and this, that, and the other thing, as as everyone has so eloquently talked about. I think for me, the thing we need to keep in mind, and maybe is a bit of our new reality, is that. We really have crossed the line, in my opinion, to where the difference between stuff that happens in your quote-unquote real life and online life, there that, that separation is a false divide at this point. Um, it's the being online is too ubiquitous in our lives. It's it, it, we need it essentially. It is a, a key resource like heat or electricity. So this idea that there's one set of rules that govern one govern one space and govern the other is is antiquated at best and dangerous, um, in my opinion. So yes, yeah, so we have rules and and laws and criminal statutes around assault. Those should be those should be pursued no matter where those assaults take place. Physical uh, online. Line. Um, and we're starting to see that. We just, uh, that, that young woman was just convicted earlier this year for telling her ex boyfriend he should kill himself, and he did, and, and she, I think, is doing a prison term now. So we're starting to see where the law is not seeing these distinctions. And that's a rude awakening to a lot of people. When you see trolls uncovered, they often that is their last line of defense. Oh, it was just online. I didn't really mean it. It's as if it's the flip side of identity, right? Like I have this identity online. If we're sitting around this table, I'm not going to act like that, but I have this whole identity that I've created myself as like a huge troll, persona. a persona, exactly. So that idea that that's a I know it's a bit of an overused term, but that that's a, that the online's a safe space for bad behavior. Mm-hmm. That's that's done, and I think, or it needs to be done, and I think we'll see that start to govern what goes on in those spaces, and that starts to the same rules like the fire in a crowded theater, you know, will uh, will apply online as they do in real life, and that's where we talk about rights. To me, I don't want to I don't want to create rights online and rights in the real world. Rights are rights, and that we should be able. To, as a society and as a governing body, um, be able to have these discussions about if society is moving that fast, then we need to adapt and to think about that. Unfortunately, I think our own opinions and then definitely the opinions and the, the law is falling behind the pace of this technology. And one thing that Charles said I wanted to riff on a little bit is the world is just getting so much smaller. And this is a five, six hundred year trend, right? You kind of start with the age of exploration. You know, this is a, this is a, this is a hundreds of year trend that the world is getting smaller. But if you think about the last 30 or 40 years, the speed of that is even more incredible. And we don't know how to deal with that yet. We don't know what it's like to live on top of each other. We don't know it's like each other urbanization, uh, borders, and now with online or you were, you know, we don't know how to do that yet. And, and I think, the place that we're in as a society and as a 
global society really is how we actually navigate how much smaller the world has gotten over 500 years and then how much quicker it's gotten smaller over the last 20 years. Yeah. I I think I agree with everything you just said, but I do have a question. It it begs a question for me of um, I think as teens, right? We're there are folks who listen to this podcast who work in youth development and are thinking about young people at a stage of their life where identity exploration is really important, right? So while I totally agree that uh, your your real life um, and your internet life should not be two separate things. Um, I do wonder about the affordance of the internet as a space for young people to try identities that suit themselves and not have it be as high stakes as um, living it in real life. And I wonder if you guys have an opinion about that or or have experienced or experimented that with uh, with yourself. And so I'll give you an example from my own experience. I was I was an athlete as a kid, but I was also kind of like a like a uh, a poet uh, hippie. Right. And there was this part of me that was really into the arts and and um, and love that world. And it was it was about culture. And, and that's what I wanted to be doing on my time. I didn't really have a space to be that person. So I went home and I was that person to myself and to people who um, who I trusted. I think if I, I if I had an identity uh, or if I had the Internet as a kid, I think I would have um, had an opportunity to do a lot more experimenting with that identity and and being a producer as a younger uh, person. And, and um, so. So anyway, that's my example. I wonder if you guys um, can speak to that a little bit. And and do you either of you have personal examples of where the Internet has helped to sort of foster? Um, having an identity that has more dimension than just who you are in real life as a young person, mm-hmm. as remarkable as that is. Mm-hmm. I think it definitely does. It's like, at least for person personally, for me personally, it has had a, an impact. Like we said earlier, like people start, there's this like kind of intrinsic people believe to be a safety behind the internet. Like you're making this persona that's someone else but in reality, it's liter- it's you just hiding behind someone else. Mm. So I think it helps in the development of a person. Like when you, like for me personally, when I was in middle school was when I first got really got access to, to internet and even just talking to my friends through like AIM when that was still a thing. It was just like there was a a ease of me being able to talk to my friends, even though it was people I knew in actual life. Like I just found it easier to communicate with people through digitally because I could like type it out oh that makes no sense I'll Mm -hmm. rewrite it so like there's this like safety in that it's not there's like it's sort of not you it's you it's actually you but it's sort of like not it could always there's like a safety mask in between people like it's sometimes easier to talk people over the phone than it is in person Mm -hmm. so I feel like that's useful in development where it's just like there's kind of an extra barrier between you, but it helps you make. And eventually, like that, I found that ease. I lost it. Like now, it's harder for me to talk to people over the phone or through text or digitally. And I find it easier in person. So, like, it helps you develop, kind of explore the things you feel like you should explore without. There's a little barrier of you being able to, like, fall back and be like that. I wasn't comfortable with that. Mm. But then eventually helps you unite the two 
as we further our advancement in that though there aren't really two separate worlds like when you're younger it's kind of like oh there's the internet which is for fun and games and then as you're and you reach an adult where it's like oh and there's that's work and that's there's <laughs> fun and games but it's so it's not also work right and it's also how i communicate with the people in my life so as in the beginning when you're first exploring it where there are two separate things it's useful in that you can kind of put yourself out there without a fear but then as you grow older they kind of join together yeah. as you use interact with both of them equally in your life and that helps you develop into the person you choose to become I haven't had a personal experience with it to be honest but I've seen a lot of examples of it whether it be from close friends to family members and to even just you know people that I may associate with the internet but I don't actually know in real life you see a lot of people put up these personas, um, a lot of youth in particular, a lot of LGBTQ youth do it um, in terms of they can express themselves as someone part of that community online, but they're not able to do that in real life. Mm. And it's always great to see as you know you watch them progress, those two come together. And mm. I think in the end, what's important if you're gonna have that persona is that somewhere in the end of the line, it meets you in real life, where you can connect it together. You don't, because the the constant hiding, but and keeping those two separately isn't really a very healthy thing socially. Mm. Um, I've seen it go wrong a, a numerous amounts of times where people in real life find you on the internet and it becomes this whole big dramatic reveal that you never expected and a lot of people really just don't recuperate well after it. Mm. It's interesting, that internet where you could kind of hide and rediscover yourself multiple times, and I'm a big believer in that, right? We should be able to wear different hats, so to speak, over our lives, mm. and even within, you know, next to each other. And we all do that to a large degree. Uh, uh, it doesn't just end in youth, by the way, as a middle-aged person. You, you're constantly doing that. Um, but I do think just whether we even are nostalgic for it or not, that the advancement of the technology allows, as you were saying, Ilana, Ileana, that you can't hide anymore. Like, I think there was a time where you could, right, where it was still corners of the web and all mm. that. But now, like, you know, it, it, that's, that's not possible. So I think a lot of that, like, where you can do that is nostalgia, not necessarily reality. Now, there is a fascinating debate around this um, because some people will say, do away with anonymity. If you want, you know, to uncover the trolls and you want better dialogue, then part of the problem is that we've hid behind anonymity, you know, like that the web has fostered that. And that seems like a logical argument, right? It makes sense. Oh, okay. Well, yes. There's actually, especially in marginalized communities, there's a very large voice for continuing anonymity because it actually allows the coverage for identity experimentation because it does actually protect and allows people to engage without having to fear the the things coming back at them. So I actually don't know if I, I – well, I know I don't necessarily have a very informed opinion, but it's actually – a really fascinating debate that's sprung up even in the last like eight to 12 months around this battle over anonymity. And it doesn't fall into like traditional political lines or whatnot. And it's a really fascinating just debate around, you know, whether doing away with anonymity is going to bring civility to the internet mm. or that actually keeping the, the ability for people to remain anonymous is actually helping discourse. Yeah. I, I think I agree with everything you just said. The the 
it certainly has gotten harder to have have a totally different identity on the web. Um, anonymity is one thing, like true anonymity. I think it's another thing. The line gets blurry when you think about the people that you know uh, and their identity on LinkedIn, for example, uh, versus their identity in Instagram, right? Um, this is a, sort of a level of experimenting with two different identities for a lot of people where, uh, you know, it's like business in the front and party in the back. <laughs> um, and so, I, you know, I think it's evolved a lot. I think it's definitely gotten harder to have like a totally hidden life as a LARPer um, or whatever your pleasure. Don't hide your LARP. <laughs> <laughs> um but uh, but I think it happens all the time, and I think that as um, I think it can be empowering. As we're both making the same point, I think it can be really empowering. Um, and I would love for educators to be thinking about how it can be uh, empowering as they're working with young people and thinking about literacies on the web, which is one of the sort of pillars of um, internet health. Um, the last thing I want to talk to you guys about uh, before we wrap is the issue of privacy. Let's go in more. So, um, and the reason for that is that uh, this is a an area that uh, when I was as an educator and somebody who's been involved with Mozilla Foundation over time, um, I... Uh, did work on the the various teams, especially at the beginning, who were um, starting to think about what a, a web literacy, a standard for web literacy looks like, and then the web literacy map. Uh, and the, the area where we spent probably the most time was on privacy. And the reason for that is that I think that there is a fear narrative uh, that has has struck the imagination of a lot of people, and for good reason, uh, adults especially, uh, because uh, internet privacy can fall into easily that bucket of um, hysteria in the 80s and 90s around uh, that was that was sort of the, the, the uh, milk box uh, missing children kind of narrative where we were thinking about um, uh, stranger danger. Um, and I want to make sure that we hear from some young people about privacy and about what the issues are, because I think that uh, the issue skews in a certain way when adults are the only ones in the room talking about it. What are the issues with privacy? Is it about stranger danger or are there things that you guys are concerned with that are more real and relevant to now uh, about the world of um the web and privacy. I think I'd say half of it is stranger danger, and the other half is um, having a still sense of danger with the people even around you. On the web, you never really know who can take your information and use it against you. Um, and there's also people who have those personas in order to hide certain things from people in real life. When having a sense of danger should just be a thing in general on the internet because you never know it's like a park you never know what's around the next corner mm -hmm. and when you're strangers are 
probably the worst part of the internet because it's unexpected. You don't know what they're going to do with your information. Whereas you might know someone who has your information and you know have a good idea what they're going to do with it, but you don't know how to stop them from doing what they're about to do. And in terms of that border between the internet and real life, what happens a lot with people with personas is that they get comfortable in this persona on the internet and they don't watch the people in real life actually find it. And once you find it, a lot of things go up in the air. Like let's say if you're a person, um, part of the LGBTQ community and you have your persona online, if that gets, if somebody around you decides to go, hey, let me just take this person's persona and push it out there. Mm and take your information and use it against you, there's a lot of terrible things that happen. This is almost like a form of bullying. Whatever you post online could be used against you. Mm -hmm. And that's something people should keep in mind. So so privacy is high stakes in in very related to the conversation we were just having about mm -hmm the way that people sort of manage their own identity uh, and whether they are uh, whether in, in what way it's public or not. Yeah. Um, I see. How about how about you, Charles? Um, I feel pretty similarly. Um, the only thing is I feel like you shouldn't take any more any more of a sense of danger into the internet than you take in real life. Like it's not like an extra creepy alley that you have to go through and so you're like you walk down the street you're like aware of who's around you and like in new york city you're like i'm not gonna get mugged like you know where to go and where to explore that like where you can go where you can be around that you're in you're decently safe and you're not worrying about certain types of danger and the internet is the same place like you know which places you can generally trust for the most part i think the biggest issue for me with privacy is for like youth and like learning is when knowing when to give up your like certain levels of privacy like oh this website wants my email to send me a coupon mm -hmm. and like oh this is dope i'll get less off but then that that then they have your email which is essentially the core of your essence right on the internet like everything on the internet to you roots back to your email because that's yep. how you get access to everything and so that email then leads to your amazon account which then has your your credit cards and all that other stuff. So it's just, it's learning when to navigate and how much privacy you should expect to have to, you should expect in where you are and also like what you should keep to yourself mm -hmm. on the internet. And like less about worrying about the danger and more of just generally like how to keep your information safe. So it's again back to that kind of uh, not having such a silo for the internet that's any different from real life. The same yeah. common sense applying in both areas. Chris, So it's just, share. these are all internet health issues. And I love, and so if you think about web literacy, then you're, it's, it is similar to street smarts, right? I've always kind of like the street smarts, web smarts, web smarts type of, of thinking about it, right? You, if you, you can, there's many ways to protect yourself, to do smart things, to not go down that alley, to, you know, not whatever. Like, and so just a, a little bit of information, you know, in your hands can be a very powerful thing. Same applies online. I agree with all that. Yay. The thing that I'm concerned about, and I do think is a broader ecosystem internet health issue, is why 
Is the onus on the individual to protect themselves from threats, which I would argue are way more dangerous from the big companies than they are a kind of stranger danger mentality. Um, and by what I mean is that if the big companies are data mining the heck out of you and and then need their platforms to be open for their own financial gain and that you become something that can be monetizable, then open, unsafe, let's call it, unsafe by default becomes the norm. And then the onus is on you, which is to know your rights, to know how to protect yourself. That's all good. I'm for that to a degree. But the system can't set up that you, that, that, that you have to know everything. Especially when so much of this is ubiquitous, so much of it is very easy to manipulate. We need to start putting privacy de by default at the center of a lot of our technology. So it's not my choice as a user or any of our choices isn't is not. Oh my God, I gotta I gotta lock myself completely down. Right. I can't. No, we should be having these kind of social compacts and sometimes rules and regulations that actually say no. You should choose how much of yourself to open up or to give away. You might say take all my data. That's fine, but you should be opting into that. The, sh the default shouldn't be exploit me. And then doubly exploit me because I would need a high degree of intelligence or training to understand how to protect myself. And even then, I'm probably spitting in the wind. Right. So we need a kind of privacy by default mentality from, from the corporations and, and the governments that put this in front. You know, privacy is a powerful thing. And, and there's many reasons why we want to be open or less private at, at different times. It should be like blinds, right? If I want the sun to come in, and I'm, you know, then I, I'm going to open my blinds. If I'm making out with my partner on the couch, I'm probably going to close my blinds. Mm -hmm. That should be empowered to the individual. And it should be obvious and clear how you go about doing that. And that's why privacy by default is something as a sort of consumer movement. We, You know, Internet health as a framework, we should start being demanding about. Um, and I heard a great slogan just the other day that, that data, big data, is the new oil. Mm. You know, th this is what they're fighting for. It, it's got positive benefits. It's got super negative ones. But none of us really totally understand the implications of what big data is doing and why we're being mined to this degree. And it's not like new techniques. They were doing it with, you know, telemarketing. I mean, how do you think people have your number, right? These are old techniques in a new medium. Yeah. And so there's a lot to, that we need to, to sort of suss out on, on that front. And that's why we feel like Internet health is a good framework and why we want to create a movement for not only better understanding and literacy, yay that, we're for that, of course, but we also have to pressure and put a kind of collectivist demand on some of these places that stop exploiting us or opening ourselves up to exploitation. Yeah. One thing I want to add on this is this, it was very recent with Google, how they recently started doing more with your data. and. A bunch of users on uh, a site, Tumblr, they gave up, they made like a whole guideline somewhat of how to like prevent them from taking your data. There's extensions you can use and then there's also specific settings within Google that you have to, you literally have to look through the settings, go through setting, through setting, through setting, just to find that one setting that says, oh, you don't want that data? Us to mine that? Nope. Okay. Just turn that off. But that's not the most obvious setting. Like, out of all the things, you have to go searching for it. Mm -hmm. And it's it's kind of ridiculous how they do all that. Um, 
And yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's the stop acting so uh, vulnerable um, when the entire culture, uh, the framework for the culture that's been set up is uh, one of vulnerability. And, and uh, I don't know when the last time you read a terms of service agreement um, is, but they can be uh, intense. And um, what I like about what you just said, uh, Chris, is the, is that, um, with that in mind, it really is about empowering users. Um, what I don't like maybe the most about the fear narrative is that it doesn't, it doesn't inspire or, or motivate young people to understand how privacy gets breached or um, how big data works, um, which is such an important lever for young people to be able to pull in the future as they're thinking about creating change with the web, thinking about uh, social action and uh, what they can do civically as creators on the web. Um, I don't think it, it's not until we think of, of, Privacy is an issue as related to how we educate young people about the mechanics of the web and how these things work um, as, uh, you know, purely being a sort of stranger danger um, narrative. But imagine if a piece of blogging software was published and then edit. Or a piece of you're making a, a video, right? Like you're making it like that... that that all those editorial choices or writing choices, you know, the sort of creative choices that you go through yeah. is all, you know, like y you want the power to then present when you're ready. And that sort of, you know, that, that piece around being ready to put that out. And that's what I think is important around sort of youth production and youth identity is that they should be empowered to know when they're ready to share, not share, and then when ready to not share. And so I think we're agreeing mostly. And I, believe me, Mark, you know me for a while, I sort of hate espousing a fear narrative. Mm -hmm. It's something that I've definitely fought against. Sure. And and it does give me a lot of, it does, it does make me nervous. But if we were actually building tools and then teaching from the point where it's up to the user when to release those things. So like I might work on a blog post in a Word doc or whatever because I, I want it to be ready when it's ready and then that, that the power is then on me to hit publish. So sure. it's like not that we live in publish and then decide when to block. It's a, it's a, maybe it's, it's a subtle difference, but I think it's actually empowering to actually if we could actually start thinking that way to actually then actually be the sort of holistic way to push against the fear narrative. Mm. I think the, uh, if I had it to do, well, uh, maybe we do have it to do over again, uh, is in future episodes, I, I think we could, we could have lots more conversation about privacy and data. And I think that the individual that's missing at the table is, a uh, a data expert and somebody particularly who knows, uh, advertising data. Cause I do know that there are, um, there are laws around anonymizing, uh, data and how we use individual, uh, you know, what is, what information is, um, 
about you is separated from your identity as an individual versus what identity we know about you as an individual. Um, and I don't, I don't have those answers, but I'm sure we could have a, a pretty interesting conversation about the mechanics of that. But, um, it does interest me a, a lot to know how much, uh, you guys are thinking about it. And, um, I think I do think that it's important to add the the more sort of timely uh, and and relevant nuance to this conversation that goes beyond uh, a, a matter of um, the the kind of safety narrative that we've just heard over and over. Before we wrap this episode, um, I want to give you guys an opportunity just to uh, shout out any place that we can. Uh, Read more about you, follow you in social media, whatever, whatever I, uh, web identity you might want to share, or maybe you want to share a, a performance piece that you uh, have on uh, in the next few weeks. Whatever it is you want to share, um, I do want to plug very quickly on on uh, so that you don't have to. You can plug something else, Chris, but. Um, the IRL podcast uh, is one from Mozilla that is part of the Internet Health Movement uh, and and part of the initiative that they have launched. And I found it to be a pretty great resource. Uh, if uh, educators, parents, uh, young people are looking for a, a podcast that is a little bit more uh, web-centric um, and really thinking about the Internet as it relates to the issues of our time, I found it uh, pretty great. So a plug for IRL. And I will put links to everything we've talked about today in the show notes. Um, most definitely, I will link to the programs that each of you participated in as uh, young people in high school, Educational Video Center, uh, who has been a guest on uh, this podcast. We talked to Steve Goodman and some other alum um, and Global Action Project who have an amazing uh, legacy here in New York, uh, helping bring youth voice uh, to uh, the, the surface in a way that uh, it's just there's so much magic there. So um, I will link to all of those things. Chris, anything you want to plug or uh, share before we sign off? You can find me on Twitter at Chris Larry, like the two names, three, three. Um, I think if I'm going to plug one thing is that. I, my creative endeavor that I've been doing actually with my daughter, who's going through her own identity discovery, um, is a podcast that we've been doing now since the spring called The Larry's Pop Pod. Uh, you can find that on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever. Um, but it's actually really been interesting. I don't say that just to plug it, but that there's been – it's been – you know, I've had this pedagogy in my head and worked on programs, et cetera. But to kind of have that interpersonal experience going through that has actually been super interesting and has definitely made me think about some things differently as well as, as underscored than things that, that I already thought. But um, – and how you actually scaffold and make um, – participation in these ways real authentic rich and and you know having adults protective and caring adults in the room is really important through this process yeah 
I, I would be, as a subscriber of the Larry's <laughs> Pod Pod, uh, I'd be really curious and to hear. Segment. <laughs> that's right. We'd, my son and I did a guest segment on Larry's Pod Pod. Uh, I, I would be curious to hear from Amelia's perspective, maybe not right now, but, uh, but soon, um, how producing the podcast has changed her perspective as she consumes popular culture, as a reviewer of it, and, and uh, as somebody who is um, who is publishing something that is really about the analysis of the uh, pop culture experiences that she's having in her day to day. Um, I think it's a great podcast. How about you guys? Do you have anything uh, any parting words for us? Uh, you can find me on Instagram as Elise underscore Lugo. That's with two S's. And big shout out to EBC for giving me the opportunity to join this podcast. Great. And I am not found on any major social media <laughs> because I. But you can uh, learn more about a bit more about my background and some more about my opinions on media and how it pertains to Mozilla's work on the Network Fifty Spotlight on Mozilla's Read, Write, and Participate blog. Great. So I will link to that, and uh, I did read that in uh, doing some homework for this for this interview, and it's actually a great wrap up to some of the uh, work you've been doing. I wish you both tons of luck uh, in all of the whatever uh, life brings you in the coming year. I so thank you for your time uh, and perspectives. Chris, thanks a ton for coming. Of course, thanks for having me and spending time with us. Um, much appreciated. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. This podcast was produced with not nearly enough support. To find out more about sponsorship or funding No Such Thing, hit me on Twitter at M.A. Lesser or find my contact info at nosuchthingpodcast.wordpress. No Such Thing is made possible through partnership with CUNY SPS and their Masters in Youth Studies. Find out more at sps.cuny.edu. And Mouse. Find us on the web at mouse.org. Beats for this show are produced by Leroy Tindy, a young man who I took to the hole when they called him black guys. You can find more on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. The podcast is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you. Show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.wordpress.com.